0: Well, I'd like to ask you to take your Bible this morning to the 11th chapter of the book of Luke, the passage that we read together just a moment ago. And as I thought about how to introduce our topic this morning, I thought all the way back to the early 90s, 92, 93, 94, 95, that era. Now, how many of you Remember back that far, and you're not embarrassed to raise your hand and admit it. Some of you weren't even born yet, right? But but many of you remember way back then. Back in those early years, uh, I in in uh, in the year of our Lord, you always always put important dates around that year of our Lord. Bit so in the year of our Lord, 1986, I got married, and then right after I got married. <clears throat> We, Beth and I, made a visit to a little church not too far away from here in the thriving metropolis of Pelzer. How many of you know where Pelzer is? Anybody know where Pelzer is? It's, it's maybe all of five, uh, six miles from here. The Oldenburgs actually live in Pelzer or around the Pelzer area. And so we went down to this little church in Pelzer, that called up the office where my wife was working because they were looking for a preacher to come and preach on Sunday. And so, long story short, Beth and I went. We had a friend that and his wife that went with us, and we went down to this little church uh, in Pelzer, and we walked in the front door of the church. It was in a little trailer park up on a hill. And we walked into that church, and, uh, and there were seven people there that morning. Everybody brought their own chair from home. So I want you to imagine walking into this building and looking at a collection of chairs that you brought from your house. You might have a lawn chair. You might have a kitchen chair. There was an actual lazy boy recliner that somebody brought and would sit. And I remember when she would sit in that chair, she'd pop out the little thing on the leg and, and so... and. Uh, Yeah, so that was our our first uh, encounter there. Right after that, we went to lunch, and on the way to lunch, I told Beth, we're going to go to lunch, we're going to have lunch with these nice people, and then we're never coming back. And at lunch, the gentleman who took us to lunch was the elder of that church, and he said, well, he said, Brother Sam, we voted, and it was unanimous. I had no idea I was candidating. I didn't go there to candidate. I just went there to preach. And so that began about a six-year journey where I became the pastor of a little church in Pelzer, South Carolina, and we learned a lot of things in that little church. During those years, there were uh, comedians that made their name in the broader world. How many of you have ever heard of Jeff Foxworthy? Anybody ever heard of Jeff Foxworthy? You might be a redneck if... Well, he got some of his jokes from our church. Jeff Foxworthy had a friend named Bill. And Bill did a comedy routine that he introduced in the early 90s called, Here's Your Sign. Remember that little comedy routine? The idea was that he thought, he kind of put out there, that there are just people who don't think and they ought to have a sign that they wear alerting the rest of us so that we don't waste time asking them important questions. And so he went on a little mission that if he ever found one of those people, he would say, here's your sign. And that would be sort of their indication that this is kind of who you are, and this is what you need to wear. And um, so one day we were in this old church, and uh, the church had grown to about 30 people. We decided we were going to do a BBS. And because all of us worked during the day, the only time to do BBS was at night. And so uh, one, one of the nights I came in and there was an ambulance parked right in the little gravel parking lot of this little church with its lights going on and, and uh, they were loading up one of the guys who was leading the, the um uh, BBS in the back of the ambulance. All these little kids were kind of watching, and I'm like, oh my goodness, what has happened? Well, <clears throat> we, uh, this was in August, and as you know, if you live in South Carolina uh, and you live out in the country, sometimes during the month of August, there are what they call these brownouts, and, and it's these power surges that come flying through the power lines, and one of those power surges had come through the power lines and had come into our church. By this time, we had got metal chairs. We'd gotten rid of the kitchen chair and the lazy boy chair. And, uh, and so we had these metal chairs. And anybody that was sitting on a metal chair near an outlet felt this incredible surge. In fact, one of the people sitting in the metal chair got knocked out. And that's who was getting loaded up into the ambulance. And so I discovered something that day. I discovered why we had never received a utility bill as a church. Because I'd get the mail and it's like, you know, we never get a power bill from Duke Power. I mean, and I just thought, well, maybe this guy has the power bill in his name and he's just paying it as a service of the church. Well, I found out that wasn't the case. When they built this church, they had wired it right into the power line. In other words, we were stealing power from Duke Power. As a church of all things. You know? So I went to the guy and I said, Can you explain this to me? And he said, as only you, you know, if you live in the South, he, he said, Well, preacher, that's what they call you in the South. Well preacher? The Bible says all power belongs to the Lord. And I didn't think the Lord should have to pay for power that was already His. I thought, here's your sign. Uh, You know, sometimes when you read the scriptures, you find people having encounters with Jesus that are almost to that level. And we're going to encounter that here in Luke chapter 11 as we wrap up the journey that we've had now for 10 weeks as we've made our way through the 48 verses that make up the little book of Jonah. And we have observed that the brevity of the book, it's a brief book, it's a beautiful book, it's it's carefully constructed, the brevity and the artistry of the book do not mask its powerful punch. Because the book of Jonah has a very powerful punch in the life of the reader. And that's exactly what Jonah intended to do when he wrote that book many, many years after, potentially many years after he experienced what, was, uh, what we've read in the book. Jesus used the story of Jonah almost eight centuries later in his ministry on three separate occasions. Well, actually two occasions if you take Mar- Matthew 12 and Luke 11 as referring to the same event. But three different times in our New Testament... We are going to read about Jesus referring to Jonah. He does it in Matthew 12. He does it here in Luke 16. And he does it again in Matthew 16, verses 1 through 4. And every time he refers to Jonah, he refers to Jonah by addressing the people who he's talking to. And he says to them, you are an evil generation. So somehow Jesus is going to take the story of Jonah that would have been unbelievably familiar to the people uh, that he was talking to, and he's going to bring Jonah to their mind because there's something about Jonah that is true about them. And that's what I want to make sure we don't miss as we say goodbye to Jonah. That God put Jonah in our Bible not just to give us an amazing story That is memorable. God put Jonah in our Bible so that Jonah would do something in our life. And the thing that God wants Jonah to do is not easy. The people that Jesus was talking to were like Jonah. The truth that Jesus was communicating to them, like the truth that he communicated to Jonah back in the book, was not a hard truth to understand. The issue was not that this was such a complicated truth that we really can't understand what you're trying to tell us. Jesus, could you be a little more clear? Could you give us a better story? Could you kind of lay it out a little In a different way, could you say it differently? And maybe if you could say it just a little differently, we could understand it. The problem had nothing to do with the comprehensibility of what Jesus was saying to them any more than when God came to Jonah and says, Jonah, I want you to get up and I want you to go to Nineveh and, and I want you to go there and preach the preaching that I'm going to give you because their great evil has come up against me. And Jonah knew exactly what God was calling to do. And if the truth be told most of the times, when we find ourselves running like Jonah did, it isn't because we didn't understand what God was asking us to do. Our problem typically is not that the truth that, that God is bringing to bear in our life at that moment is so difficult if we just knew better Hebrew, if we could just figure out Greek, maybe we could get to the root of this truth. That's not our problem. Our problem is not understanding the truth. Our problem, more often than not, is that the truth is offensive to us. There's something about the truth that is coming to bear in our moment in our life that we find morally or theologically or personally repugnant. And... You'll remember when we were listening to Jonah, Jonah, Jonah actually told us, look, there were times in, in my run from God where, where I knew exactly what God was doing, and by the time we got to chapter 4, I just told you what I'd been talking to God about the entire time. What God was asking me to do was morally, it was theologically, and it was personally repugnant. It was offensive. And when we get to Matthew chapter 12... And when we get to Luke chapter 11, the truth that Jesus is saying is morally, it is theologically, and it is personally repugnant to the spiritual leaders who are listening to Jesus. You say, well, Pastor Sam, they were Pharisees. They, they were scribes, of course. They were the religious, educated people of the day. Can you think of religious, educated people in our day who might be at Palmetto? Can you think of people who have studied the Scripture formally for a period of time? Can you think of people who may have actually taken the time to to sit through entire semester-long courses on the Scripture? And I think we all could nod our head, right? And so I want us to really feel the weight of what Jesus is actually doing here when he looks at religious, educated people who were highly respected. The Pharisees and the scribes in Jesus' day were highly respected. They were the the religious people that the, the population would have embraced. If you looked in Israel and you went to the common person, and you said, now I want to know, who, who among you loves God? They would all point to the Pharisees, and they would all point to the scribes. And if you ask them, well, who are the ones who are the hypocrites? They would all point you to Jerusalem, and they would say, now if you go to Jerusalem, there's a crowd of people that live in that temple, and they own the temple, and they are the Sadducees. They have bought that office, they've found their way into that office, and they are, they are, are not really concerned about the law of God as much as they are about making money off the sacrifices that they do. So this is the lay of the land when Jesus was talking. So when we come to this passage, we are looking at religious people who would have been highly respected, who would have been viewed by the population as people who knew God, who understood God's word, and who were living according to it. And by the time Jesus is done... He has looked at these people and he has said to them, You are an evil generation. Throughout Luke 11, he's actually going to pronounce woes on them. And so, this is why I think this morning, as we look at this sign. We need to make sure that we don't so quickly pass over it as simply being what Jesus did to rebuke a group of people in the New Testament. Maybe there's something that the Spirit of God needs to do in my heart as your pastor. I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me. Maybe there's something God needs to do in me. In spite of all of the time I spend in the Word, in spite of all of the background that I have in understanding and all of the resources that fill up my office, maybe there's something God needs to do in me. And maybe there's something that God might want to do in you. And so as we come to the text this morning, maybe the best way to do this is to let Jesus speak into our lives as we listen carefully and humbly to this difficult conversation that he's having here in Luke 11 and in Matthew 12. And so let's, let's make sure we have the context. I want you to keep your finger here in Luke 11, and I want you to flip over to Matthew 12, and I want you to see. We've read Luke 11 together, so let's go back to, Luke, to Matthew 12, and I just want you to see the setup. And while you're turning, then let me remind you that in Matthew chapter four, at the end of Matthew four, Jesus has been baptized. He's been tempted. He's called the disciples together, and he begins his ministry in the northern part of Israel, around the lake—the lake that you know as the Sea of Galilee. All around that lake are villages. There were more than two hundred villages and cities that dotted the upper part of Israel, the northern part. Of Israel that was called Galilee of the Gentiles because the Galilee that part of the area was a very wonderful part uh, it was sort of like you know if there was a state park in Israel it would have been located up in that area and people went up there to be refreshed and so Herod had brought Rome into that area he built massive Gentile cities all around that area and Jesus had been going up and down in those cities announcing the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, he, the king, had arrived in his own house. This was David's land. This was the land God gave to Abraham. And Jesus had arrived, and when he arrived, he found that the people had been lacerated by an enemy. The enemy was Satan. He had, he had led the people into darkness. He had destroyed their hearts. He had brought them into bondage. He had afflicted them even through demonic activity. And Jesus was going up and down in that region. And Matthew says he was healing all of their diseases. And Jesus didn't just do mighty miracles to display his power. He gave mighty words to unfold his mission And his message, and you know those words, is the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus was done preaching, the Scripture says, the people were astonished. They were amazed because he spoke to them as one having authority. This was a wonderful moment in the redemptive history of God's people. The chapter in that story that opened, opened with the arrival of the champion that all of God's people had been waiting for since Genesis 3. He was here. He was declaring it openly. He was validating it through miracles. And the people were astonished at the gracious, wonderful miracles and the wonderful message of His words. But not everybody was happy. And you know what's coming next. The people that were most unhappy were the religious leaders of the day because they had been particularly Hard hit by the emphasis Jesus put on Micah 6.8 in his ministry. Remember Micah eight, God has told you, O oh man, what is good. And so what is the good? What is the tove that God is looking for out of you and out of me? To do justly. To love what? Mercy and to walk humbly. Can we say that together? To do justly. To love mercy and to walk humbly. Humbly, those three things, do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. And by the time that Jesus is done, it is very clear as he looks at these religious leaders that he is confronting them with the very hard truth that they are not doing justly in spite of all of their outward righteousness and the fastidiousness even going down to paying tithes on the most minute of spices they would buy in the synagogue, they were not doing justly. And by the way that they handled and despised people who were unclean and ritually unpure, and the way they were so angry at Jesus when he actually healed a man whose arm was withered, they didn't love mercy, they weren't compassionate at all. And because they desired the chief seats in the synagogue, and they loved when people met them and said, oh, this is Rabbi so-and-so, they weren't walking humbly. And so Jesus is going to expose all of this in their own heart. And they were furious at the thought of a carpenter-turned-rabbi coming and speaking to them in this way. But they were at a loss to explain the incredible miracles that he kept doing. And so when we get into Matthew chapter 12, um, he has just had a very powerful, miraculous display where he heals a man who was demon-possessed, who was both mute and blind. And this miracle was so notable, it was so unusual that the people began to ask the question, could this be the son of David? They're looking at Jesus coming out of Nazareth, a rabbi, and and, and he's, and he's teaching like nobody's ever taught before. He's kind, he's gracious, and he does these amazing miracles. And then here in their midst is this most astonishing of miracles, and the people are beginning to come to the right conclusion. Surely this one is the champion. Surely this one is the son of David. And the Pharisees realize we have to do something about this. We have to give them an alternative explanation for all of these miracles. And so they began to speak as teachers of the law. And they began to say, now let me give you, uh, really, you folks don't understand this, but let me give you the real secret to the power of this man's miracles. You want to know how he does the miracles? He is in league with the prince of demons. That's what the word Beelzebul means. Jesus is doing what He is doing by the finger of the prince of demons. The idea of by the finger is the idea of the source of power. You remember in Pharaoh's day, Moses would come in and do miracles and then uh, the the magicians would, would do the miracles as well. And then they finally got to a miracle that Moses was able to do. And when the magicians weren't able to replicate... That miracle, they looked at Pharaoh and they said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, there's only one explanation for this. That man Moses is doing what he's doing by the finger of God. That's in the book of Exodus, chapter 8. And that's what Jesus is talking about here when he refutes these Pharisees. They have come right into his midst and they've observed what he's doing And they've seen these notable miracles and they're beginning to realize these people are starting to conclude something that we can't afford to let them conclude. And so we've got to give them an alternative explanation. And so here's how he's doing all those miracles. He is in league with the prince of demons and he is doing all that he's doing by the power that the prince of demons gives to him. This is blasphemy, really, of the highest order. Isn't it? And that's why Jesus looks at these leaders and he says, when you blaspheme in this way, you blaspheme not against me, you blaspheme against the Spirit of God that is on me. That's the whole reason in that chapter he quotes Isaiah and the Spirit of God being on him. And so here is this undeniable miracle. And as soon as he's done doing that... He goes into their synagogue and he does another miracle. There's a man whose hand is completely withered up and it's been that way since birth. And the Pharisees say, now what are you going to do about this? It's the Sabbath day. You can't heal on the Sabbath day. And Jesus says, well, let me ask you a question. Have you not read? What happens when a man has a sheep who falls into a ditch on the Sabbath day? And everybody knew what happened when a man's sheep, his source of livelihood, fell into a ditch on the Sabbath day. You went in and you pulled that sheep out. And Jesus looks at these Pharisees and he says, isn't a man worth more than a sheep? And then he said, now, what, what do the priests do on the Sabbath day? Aren't they violating The Sabbath day when they slaughter an animal and they burn it, somebody has to make a fire, aren't they breaking the Sabbath day? Don't they profane the Sabbath day as priests? And the answer is, of course they do, but they're priests. This is the point of temple worship. And so Jesus is looking at these men, and he is rebuking them, and he is exposing something about them that was true in an earlier prophet named Jonah. They have a very different heart than God's. They lack compassion. Jesus said, do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. And so Jesus looks at these men and he rebukes them And after the rebuke, they come to Jesus and they demand a sign. So if you're really who you say you are, then give us a sign. And you want to step back and say, are you kidding me? He's already been giving you signs. How many more signs do you want? I mean, he's... He's healed people. He's opened blind eyes. He caused lame people to walk. You guys were there when they opened up the roof and they let that guy down in. He walked on water. I mean, he's even raised the dead. How many more signs do you want? And so Jesus looks at this generation that is demanding a sign and he says to them, the only sign that is going to be given to you is the sign of the prophet Jonah. And so that brings us to three important things that I want us to understand about that sign so that we don't miss the lesson that God has for us as we listen in to the lesson that he's trying to give to these religious leaders. And so maybe the first way we can understand this is to sort of divide up these three big ideas around three personalities that are in our story. There's Jonah. So let's start with Jonah, the sign. And I would suggest that maybe we could look at Jonah and sum it up this way. Mercy resisted. Mercy resisted. And in Matthew 12 and and in Luke 11, Jesus is coming along and He is saying to them, here's your sign. You want a sign? Here's your sign. It's Jonah. Now, of all of the Old Testament prophets, why did he pick Jonah? Now, remember where he was. He was in Galilee, and right where he was was about a four-mile, five-mile walk to the city of Nazareth where he was raised. The prophet Jonah came from a little village called Gath-Hefer. Gath-Hefer is Nazareth. Remember where Jesus was was coming out of Nazareth and somebody said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The idea was Nazareth is a nothing town. And out of that nothing town had come a prophet named Jonah. And Jonah had been sent to Gentiles, outcasts, wicked, immoral people. Jesus had been sent to outcasts, to wicked, immoral people. And Jonah had a big problem with that. Jonah was like, this is morally and theologically nonsensical. How can you morally take the kind of mercy that you're talking about and give it to people who have done that? And the Pharisees were constantly coming to Jesus' disciples, or they were coming to Jesus himself, and they were saying, how can you do that? How can you hang out with him? How can you hang out with her? What in the world are you doing around those kinds of people? Those are the kinds of people that don't deserve God's mercy. You should be hanging out with us. You should be elevating us. You should be uh, kind of joining in on our thing, but instead you're hanging out with prostitutes? You're hanging out with lepers. You're hanging out with unclean people. This is morally and theologically unsustainable. And beyond that, you're actually wanting to take this kingdom bit that you're announcing and you're wanting to give it to Gentiles. In fact, in Nazareth, you actually told people there in Nazareth because we heard all about what you said in Nazareth. You actually told people in Nazareth that there was many widows in Israel, but there was one widow in Zarephath that God sent mercy to. And there were many lepers in Israel, but there was one pagan leper named Naaman, and God had mercy on him. And don't think we missed what you were saying by that. You are actually theologically out of line. And isn't this the point Jonah was making all these eight centuries early? God, if you're taking mercy... To the Ninevites, you are morally out of line and you are theologically out of line. This is exactly what was going on in the heart of these Pharisees, which is why Jesus said, you want a sign? I'm going to give you one. His name is Jonah. And you're just like him. Like Jonah, they were willful sinners in desperate need of mercy, but they didn't even know it. And Jonah says, now remember my book when I was writing you my story? I wrote you four chapters, and we got to the very end, and I kind of looked at you, and we looked back on my story, and I said to you, you know, the person in the book that needed the most mercy was not the sailors. The person in the book that had the hardest heart was not the Ninevites. The per- Remember when we were talking about this? this? is Jonah talking to us. Remember when we were talking about my story? The person that needed the most mercy in the book was me. And by the way, it may be that that's where you and I are. The people who need the most mercy, the person who needs the most mercy is often me. And that's really hard to embrace, isn't it? because it means that we have to look and and come to assess ourselves properly. Like Jonah, they were spiritual leaders who should have understood God's plan. Right in Matthew 12, and again in Luke 11, Jesus is going to refer to Old Testament scriptures that make clear that this kingdom that he came to announce was for the Jew, but it was also for the Gentile. And they had a huge problem with that. They couldn't see that this, this they, they were opposed on, as we said earlier, moral and theological grounds. How could God extend people mercy like that? And, then, and Jesus, how can you go around breaking the very laws that we teach people have to be obeyed? I mean, look at your disciples. They're running through the field on the Sabbath day of all days, and they're picking grain. They're harvesting. And they're breaking the law. And Jesus said, Well, haven't you read what David did when he was hungry on the Sabbath day? And got real quiet. And look at you, Jesus. You walk right into the synagogue, the place of worship, on the Sabbath day. And when you should have been praising God and listening to the Torah and listening to one of us explain it to you, you're over here messing with some dude with a withered hand. He's had that hand forever. And surely you could wait till the proper time to heal that withered hand. It's not like he's going to figure out, oh boy, another day with a withered hand. He's had that withered hand forever. And Jesus said, now wait a minute. He's not a sheep. He's an image bearer. And if you wouldn't look at a sheep and leave him in the ditch and say to the man, look, I know he might die there, but it's a Sabbath day, so you know what? If you die, you die, but don't touch the sheep. You bring the sheep right up. And these Pharisees are looking at Jesus and going, you are not just teaching theological inaccuracy. You're actually a lawbreaker. You're breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus looked at them and he said, I want you to know something. The Sabbath was made for man. Not the other way around. God didn't create the Sabbath and say, no, I got to create some people to keep it. He created image bearers, And the Sabbath was supposed to be a gift to them. You've turned it into a burden that they can't even bear. And that's true today. You know, I was just over there in Israel. Uh, I hope we can go as a church uh, in, in in the very near future. But one of the things that happens in Israel at sundown on Friday, the entire country shuts down, or at least the religious cities in the country shut down. I've been in Jerusalem on the Sabbath, and it's empty, it's quiet, the stores are shut. I've been over at Joppa on the Sabbath, and everything's open. Because this is a port city full of people that are like uh, somewhat gentile in their component, and they don't really give a rip about the Sabbath. But in the city of Israel, everybody cares about the Sabbath. You know what you can't do on the Sabbath if you're in a hotel? You can't ride an elevator on Sabbath day. Too bad if you're on the 14th floor. Because if you punch a button, you're creating a spark, which means you're making a fire, which is against the Sabbath day. So how am I going to get around that if I'm an orthodox law-keeping Jew? And the answer is, I'm going to create a Shabbat elevator. And you know what the Shabbat elevator does? It stops on every floor. Too bad if you're on the 21st floor. You've got 21 stops. You ever been, been there? I mean, it's amazing. If if you are an observant Sabbath day Jew, you cannot turn on or turn off the lights in your house on the Sabbath day because you're creating a current which might create a spark which is making you fire. But you can hire a Gentile to come in and turn on your lights and turn off your lights for you. Or you can put them on a timer. If you have a car, you can't turn your car on. So in the city of Jerusalem, there are Gentiles who have a side gig. And their side gig is, on the Sabbath day, they make extra money starting people's cars. Because they're Gentiles. You're going to hell anyway, so go ahead and start my car. I'm not, I'm going to be Torah observant, so I'll drive the car that you started, and when you're burning in the fires of hell for this, I'll be righteously indignant. I'm putting a lot of words in people's mouths. That's really not how they would look at it. But in essence, that's the religious leaders in Jesus' day. We're looking at the Sabbath, and here is someone whose entire life has been affected, and God's merciful heart said, I want to heal you. Like Jonah, they were resisting God's will, and they were disobeying God's word, and they were rejecting God's mercy. And God says to them, You want a sign? I'll send you a sign. I'll send you the kind of sign I sent Nineveh. I sent Jonah to Nineveh, and I sent Jesus to you. And that's the second thing I want us to see. It's not just Jonah, mercy resisted. It's Jesus, mercy extended. In what sense is Jonah a sign? Jonah appears in the most wicked city on the planet of his day. He shows up, and it's like he came out of nowhere. And when he got there, he started talking about a God that everybody had heard of. Every Ninevite had heard the stories of what this God had done to Pharaoh and to Pharaoh's armies. Every Ninevite had heard about this God and what he had done to the Canaanites. In fact, by the time Jonah comes... There have already been Ninevite armies. There have already been Assyrian armies that have come into the northern kingdom to bring tribute or to pay or to extract tribute for them. So they knew about Jonah's God. And all of a sudden comes this man, this prophet in the middle of their city announcing a message from God. And all of a sudden in the cities of Capernaum and Jerusalem comes another greater prophet who appears, and He has a message for them from God. And it's a very similar message. Repent, lest you likewise, what? Perish. Jesus becomes the sign. He said the only sign that will be given you is the sign of, God, of Jonah. Just like God sent Jonah to Nineveh, God has sent me to this generation. It's interesting that Jonah performed no miracle in Nineveh. There's no record of Jonah ever doing a miraculous sign in Nineveh. He himself was the sign. And here is Jesus who did something Jonah didn't do. He did miraculous miracles. And these people come back to him and they still demand more. We don't believe you give us a bigger and better sign. And Jesus looks at them and he says, the biggest sign that God has ever given you is me. I am your sign. And this is all validated in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, by by the fact that what happened in Jonah's day should be happening in Jesus' day. Jesus says, Now look, you want to understand the sign? I'm the sign. And what happened to Jonah is going to happen to me. Just like Jonah was in the deep. For three days and three nights, I am going to be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And just like God delivered Jonah from the deep, God is going to deliver me from death. He's going to resurrect me from the dead. And that became the sign that the entire world observed. God validated Jesus. He validated his work. He validated his words through the resurrection. And here's my question. In the book of Acts... How did the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who back in Matthew 12 were listening to this, how did they respond when the sign came true? Did they fall on their knees and say, Oh, this Jesus, you were right. You said that you would be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights and that you would raise from the dead. And, and just like God delivered Jonah from the deep, God has delivered you from the dead. And so we were wrong. We repent. Is that what happens in Acts 4? Is that what happens in Acts 5? Is that what happens in Acts 6? And the answer is no. These Pharisees become even more committed to their mission of eradicating Jesus and persecuting his followers. Jesus said, I am the sign. And the sign that I'm giving you is the sign of my resurrection. The fact that I raised up from the dead, that God raised me from the dead, validates every lesson I've taught you. It vindicates every claim I've made. And it lays out for you your response and your responsibility to the truth that I have been giving to you. And then he looks at them and he says two things. He said, On the day of judgment, the men of Nineveh are going to stand up and they're going to condemn you. And they're going, to, they're going to condemn you because when Jonah showed up, a reluctant prodigal prophet showed up in their midst and preached just a one-time message of repentance, the entire city repented. And when somebody greater than Jonah came from heaven and stood in your midst and for three years taught you, and appealed to you, and prayed for you, and served you, and preached to you, you refused to repent. And then he says, now there was a queen, the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, who heard about the, the fame of Solomon, the wisdom of Solomon. And she journeyed from her far country all the way to see for herself the wisdom. And when she got there, she embraced the wisdom. And on the day of judgment, she is going to rise up and stand next to the men of Nineveh and they are going to condemn you because she will say to you, somebody wiser than Solomon, the wisdom of God personified, stood in your midst and you rejected. You and I sit here and we shake our heads and we're like, wow, unbelievable. And Jonah... And Jesus would both turn around and look at us and say, now let me ask you a question. Aren't you doing the same thing? Aren't you doing the same thing? I mean, how many times in your life has the word of God been clearly taught to you? And some truth that the spirit of God began to put in front of you, you just kind of said, well, I'm not going to talk about that. Remember when John and God weren't talking? And the captain of the ship comes down. He's like, Jonah, I don't know what's happening. There's this incredible storm that has risen up. We know it's demonic in nature. It's spiritual in nature. Can you talk to your God? And Jonah's like, "Well, well, the problem is my God and I aren't talking right now. We're not on talking terms. Have you ever been where you're not talking to God because you're upset with God about something he's done in your life? Or something he's permitted and you're like, theologically, this should never have happened to me. Morally, this should never have happened to me. God, this is unfair. It's unjust. And so when, when you let this stuff go on in my life, don't come over here and talk to me about this stuff. Don't don't come over here and talk to me about this or that or the other or about this command or that command. Don't come over here and talk to me until you fix this thing that you allowed over here that is so difficult and it's so offensive to me and I can't understand why you would allow this to happen. And Jonah says, now wait a second. Remember that booth I sat under out there? You're coming to my booth. You're going to sit next to me and we're going to have a, ch- a chat about this. Because that's exactly what I did. That's exactly what these Pharisees are doing. And if the truth is actually known, you and I actually do this more often than we care to. Has God ever done something in your life or allowed something in your life that is so difficult and is so painful, you can't hardly bear it? And you come before God and you beseech God to take it away like Paul beseeched three times for God to take away the thorn in the flesh. And God says, no, I'm leaving it there because that is how my strength is going to be made perfect in your weakness. And you hold your hand up to God and you say, well, if that's the way it's going to be, then fine. I'll come to church, I'll sit in church, but my heart is brittle. Because I don't want that in my life. And for you to come and talk to me about this, or that, or the other, we're just not talking about those things. I'm going to be there, but I'm going to be distant, I'm going to disengage, and eventually what's going to happen is you're going to depart. Or maybe there's something that's going on around you. Maybe there's somebody that, that... That God has chosen to show mercy to and you're going, that should never have happened. God didn't show me mercy like that. God brought judgment in my life, and I can't believe He would do that. And the next thing you know, you and God are having a Jonah moment. And Jesus says to you, I'm going to give you a sign. The sign is Jonah. So let's end with the final thing, and that is mercy received. Mercy received. Right in the middle of all of this story, Jesus says, now, let me give you a little parable, and the parable is very simple. I'm going to tell you a story about a strong king who had a mighty army, and he came and he occupied a house, and he buttoned the house down, and he put all his treasures in the house, and he was safe and secure until a stronger man came and unarmed him. And in the story... The original strong man who came in and secured the house is Satan. And a stronger man has come. His name is Jesus. And the entire original first part of Matthew is Jesus going up and down in the house that Satan has occupied, cleaning the house, healing the people, banishing the demons, and by the time he's done, the house is swept clean. And Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and he is saying, I have come, the kingdom is here, I've swept it clean, but you have to embrace the truth. I am the light. You have to embrace the light. Because if you don't embrace the light, what's going to be in you is darkness. That's the whole idea of the light-darkness part of the story. And, And if you reject me and you remain in darkness then that house is going to go back to bondage. It's going to be worse at the end than it was at the beginning. And while Jesus is telling the Pharisees this incredible story with this hard-hitting moment of truth, there is an unnamed woman in the crowd. And she is so blessed by what she's hearing. She's so excited that Jesus is here. Maybe she saw a miracle. Maybe she was related to somebody who had experienced the incredible mercy of God and she can't contain herself anymore and she just shouts out from the cloud, blessed is the mother who bore you and the breasts that nursed you. In Jesus' day, that was one of the highest forms of praise that you could give to somebody. Nothing about this. This is first century religious Judaism. Women did not speak in that culture. And they especially didn't speak publicly and they especially didn't speak in ways that countered what the religious establishment had said. The religious establishment had just said about Jesus, he's doing what he's doing by the finger of the Lord of Demons. And this woman's going, no, 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 no. That's not at all what's going on. She is so overcome by what she is seeing and what she's experiencing that she can't keep silent. And she just raises her voice and she says, bless you, Jesus. I bless you and bless be the breasts that nurse you. And Jesus looks at this woman and he says, and let me add something to that. The real blessing comes to the person who receives my word like you've received it and obeys it. And so I want to end this morning by asking you this question. Are you like that woman? Or are you like the Pharisees? Sadly, in my own life, there have been many more times that I've stood in the place of the Pharisees and said, well, Jesus, you can't do that. That's not right. That's not just. That's not fair. You can't. I'm not not for that. I'm not going to have anything to do with that. And Jesus says to me, you know what? Look at your heart. That compassion that is such a part of my heart is not in yours. You talk about loving justice, and you talk about loving mercy, and you talk about walking humbly, but when you look at your life, Pastor Sam, you're not humble. You really don't love mercy. And I can show you five places where you're not doing justly. And I'm like, well, Jesus, let's not talk about that right now. Because actually, we need to go to Nahum, because next Sunday I've got to preach on Nahum. So I'm going to talk about this. Let's go. What's Nahum's name mean? Oh, it means comfort. Oh, he comes from Capernaum. Ooh, that's Capernaum. Ooh. You know, and, and Jesus is going, no, 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 no. Okay, that's great. You can, you can sit there and write your little notes on your little papers and all that you do in your office. But I want to talk to you about justice, because right here you're not just and I want to talk to you about mercy because you have had no mercy in this case. And I really want to talk to you about humility because I'm just telling you as your Lord, you're not humble. And I'm like, well, you know, Father, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but I really need to look at the Greek word here because my Greek's a little rusty and I've got to get this commentary. And God's like, okay, do your, do your little thing. You know, whatever you want to do over there. I'm not blessing that. Because what you're doing is avoiding the conversation that I am having with you. And so until you are ready to talk, you're going to sit over there and get all the cool stuff you want to get out of your commentaries, but it isn't going anywhere because this is the conversation I want to have with you. And then if that's not bad enough, Jonah shows up and goes, Hey, he's right. Trust me, I lived on the hill in a little booth of my own making. And, and you, you got to talk to him. And by the way, that's where you live. It's not just Pastor Sam. It's you. And in the middle of all of that, studying, God says, now let me show you somebody. I never would have thought of this person. I never would have picked, you know, I've read this narrative for scores of times and it never jumped out at me until this week. God says, I want to show you a woman. You don't know her name. You don't know her background. You don't know anything, but I want to tell you about a woman. Here's a woman, and here's what she did. I just want to praise you, Jesus. And I want to bless you for who you are and for what you're doing. So my question to you this morning is this. Are you willing to be the woman? Are you willing to be the woman? Lord, thank you that we can come to your word, and it can speak truth to us in very direct and powerful ways. Lord, we've taken a little more time this morning perhaps than we should for this passage, but we ask that it would not have been wasted time, that it would be time that your word could do the work in us. You know, maybe you're here this morning and there's an area and you and God have been wrestling with for a while. Would you come to the Lord and just say, Father, help me to be that woman. Help me to surrender. Help me to submit. Help me to do what Jonah did at the end. Help me to do what Jesus wants me to do. Help me to submit and to surrender and to embrace. And Lord, would you help us do this? In Jesus' name, amen.